So we're in this uh, series looking at some, some of the Psalms so that we can understand how to read the Psalms, how to understand them when we work our way through them. So we're in Psalm 26 today. <clears throat> the Psalms are kind of like the Old Testament hymn book. And you know as we read through the hymn, uh, a, a hymn book, you know each of those songs kind of stands alone. Sometimes certain hymn, hymn books will cluster Christmas songs together or songs about the uh, revival together, or songs about uh, Easter resurrection theme together. But most of them stand alone, the Psalms that we have, they stand alone. They don't really connect, although sometimes we do find them in a, in a pattern of some sorts. We're going to see one example of that today as we look at Psalm 26. He starts out, Psalm 26, if you have it in your Bible, he starts out by saying, Vindicate me, Lord. Vindicate me. So we're titling the message Vindication because the rest of, the, the rest of this 26th uh, chapter of the book of Psalms is about why he thinks God ought to vindicate him. And of course you have on your paper there the definition of vindicate is to clear someone of blame or suspicion. So he's asking God to clear him, clear his name of blame or suspicion. Let's read through the 26th Psalm, just 12 verses, and let's get a feel for how he lays this out. This is a prayer. He's talking to God because we need to learn, okay, how should godly people relate to God? How should we be talking to God? That's what we're looking for. So uh, let's read this starting in verse 1 all the way through. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away from my soul, do not take away my soul among the sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. Interesting. He's saying, Lord, you ought to vindicate me. So, uh, a couple synonyms. Let me get my notes out here. A couple synonyms of uh, what it means to vindicate me. In other words, you could say, absolve me, defend me, exonerate me, justify me, substantiate me, uphold me. He says, Lord, I need someone to come alongside me. I can't do this alone. I need your help. And then he gives six reasons in his prayer on why God ought to vindicate him and uphold him. We're going to look at those six so we can learn some things. Number one, he says, I have trusted in the Lord. He said that in verse 1. I have trusted in the Lord. 
It's a good thing to trust in the Lord. Not just in church on Sunday, but all the time. He says two interesting things to catch my, caught my attention. He says, I have led a blameless life. And then he says, I have not faltered in trusting you. Hello, this is David writing. Did David already forget about that affair he had with that married woman getting her pregnant while her husband was off serving in his war? Did he forget this already? Did he already forget that he had arranged to have her husband killed in battle so that he could then look like the hero stepping in and rescuing the damsel in distress and bring her into his harem? Did he forget this already? How soon we forget what we're really like. So how do we justify David praying like this when, when we know what he's really like? The only way I think we can do that is to understand that Psalm 26 is a sequel to Psalm 25. They kind of flow together. He is praying this prayer in Psalm 26 because he had just said the prayer in Psalm 25. And in verse 7 of chapter 25, he said this. Do we have that? There it is. He says in verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Don't, re don't remember those dumb things I did back then. Don't remember the foolish things I did, the trouble I got myself into, the way I embarrassed you, Lord. Don't, don't remember those things. Forget those things. Now, if he just said that prayer, Lord, forget my past. Don't hold that against me. If he really believes God heard his prayer, how is he then going to pray his next prayer? He prays it as if God has heard it. God has already forgiven. God has already removed it. God's not holding that against him. So now he prays like he's got it all together. He prays like God has renewed him. He prays like the Spirit of God has given him a new life. He prays a prayer like that. And I think God wants us to pray prayers based on what we believe God has done in our life. If we believe God has forgiven us, He has cleansed us, He's given us a new heart, a new beginning, a new spirit, we ought to pray like that. We ought to pray like we believe He's, He, he and I are in good status. This, this thin thing that separated us is out of the way. He is my pal. He's my friend. Amen. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. Isn't that what we do? I mean, we, we read books to understand how things work, how we should live our lives. We, 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 uh, we hang out with people who have successful marriages because we want to have a successful marriage ourselves. We listen to other people about how they became financially um, successful so we can be financially successful. We want to learn and we lean on our own understanding. And God doesn't think like we think. We have to think like God thinks. 
And God thinks in terms of holiness, not in terms of sinfulness and selfishness. This is why we see the terminology the way we do in Psalm 26. Because he's talking about righteousness. He's talking about the right way because he's using language that he knows God will respond to or he he thinks God will respond to. In Proverbs 37 verse 5, it says, commit your way to the Lord, trust him, and he will act. Notice three parts of that. Commit your way to the Lord. You know what commit means? It means you make a commitment. You're, you're devoting yourself. Commit your way, everything about what you do, to the Lord. Put it in his hands. And trust him, exclamation point. And he will act. Trust says God will act. That's what my trust does. It's, another word for that is faith. Now, we all have to practice faith. Did you know that? We all have to practice faith. I mean, to get in your car and go 70 miles an hour down, down the interstate with drivers out there reading texts all the time, that takes some faith. That's a scary thing. I mean, you may feel like you got control, but you're speeding around all these other people, and you don't know about them. Now, I know some of, some of you are courageous travelers, but every time I get on an airplane and that big machine starts rumbling down the runway to take off, I sit back in my seat and I said, oh, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. You're going to take care of me. Because I don't know about that flock of geese that could come flying in front of that plane. I don't know a tire could blow out speeding down the runway. I don't, I don't know that an engine could blow just as we get to the end of the runway about to take off. I don't know any of that. So I can't lean on my own understanding because flying on an airplane, if we lean on our own understanding, kind of freaks us out. Trusting the Lord. And He will act. When we commit our way to Him and we trust Him with what we've committed to Him, He will act. We just have to sit back. That's what trust is. That's faith. That's the first thing. I have trusted the Lord. Here's the second thing. He says, I am mindful of your unfailing love. Unfailing means it never stops, never lets us down. His unfailing love never stops loving us. Says that in verses 2 and 3. And as I was preparing for this message last week, I was sitting at my desk and I I sat back in my chair and I closed my eyes and I thought, what's a good illustration, a good Bible example that I could use for God's unfailing love? And I I thought about some Old Testament stories and I thought about some New Testament stories. And then I was, as I was sitting there with my eyes closed thinking about it, I, in my mind, I kind of saw this picture of me standing up here on this platform looking at you. And I thought, that's it. That's the great example of God's unfailing love. It is you. It is us together. I mean, we know what we're like. We know the mistakes we've made. We know the messes that are in our past. And yet God still loves us. His love never fails. No matter how stupid we are, His love never fails. We are the example of that. And then He says... Test me. This is his prayer. He's conversing with God. Test me. Try me. Try means, you know, put me on trial. 
is that a safe prayer? Lord, put me to the test. Lord, you hear me talking all this, this bold confidence talk, all this faith talk. You hear me saying it. You hear these words coming out of my mouth. Put me to the test. I, I, I'm a little reluctant to pray that kind of prayer because I believe God will act. Amen? Amen? He'll put me in some kind of a test and then see how I react. And I, I think I have to be reminded that the tests God puts us in are not to catch us in our weakness, but to reveal to us our weakness so that we can then approach Him, commit our way to the Lord, trust Him, and then He acts to clean us up. Test me. It's not a safe prayer. Putting your life in God's hands, come to think of it, isn't really safe because He's not going to leave us where He found us. Amen? Amen. He's going to take us somewhere else. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3 says it like this The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Now, we, we, what does that mean, but the Lord tests our heart? How does that connect with the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold? Because it's obviously all tied together. It's a word picture he's given us. A crucible is a, is a container, a pot, usually porcelain, that they would put silver dust and powder and fragments in, and they would put that over a heat, and they would heat it up, and the silver would melt and the heaviness of the silver would pull the pure silver down to the bottom and all the impurities that you really don't want with the silver rise then to the top. And then you skim off the dross or, or what you really don't want and you've got pure silver in there. And then he switches that, he takes that one step further to gold. And you put gold in a crucible and you put it in the furnace and you heat the furnace up and it gets hot and all that gold melts down and it's so heavy it sinks to the bottom and the impurities float to the surface and then you skim off the impurities and you've got pure gold. We understand how that works. But what's he talking about our tests here? What's he talking about? How does that fit together the testing of our hearts? I think it's pretty clear if we commit our way to the Lord, God will put us in a crucible and he will turn up the heat. Anybody experienced that yet? I have. He will turn up the heat real hot and melt our hearts. And then once our hearts are melted, he'll come along and skim off what doesn't belong and leaves behind the purity inside of our hearts. This is God's unfailing love in our life. James 1.12 in the New Testament says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's, we're going to receive the crown of life. A crown. You know, a crown is what a, someone who wins the race puts on their head, the wreath. A crown is what someone who, has, uh, who is in charge has, is empowered. The crown represents the empowerment that they have, the authority that they have as the king. A crown. And God promises to give a crown of life. Crown of life. I don't think that life is necessarily talking about heaven. I think that crown of life is talking about 
abundant life down here on this planet. But the way you get that is by holding steady through the tests of life. We don't praise God because everything went well and then run away from God when it looks like he dropped the ball. We hold on to God through everything that comes our way. That's trusting in him. And Paul says, I am, uh, David rather says, I am mindful, mindful. I keep thinking about your unfailing love. Never stops. Jeremiah 29, 11, We don't want to forget this one. God says, I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. We have to remember this verse when we're going through the trials because sometimes we feel like God let us down and the devil is working us over. But God says, I haven't forgotten. I know the plans I have for you. Did you know God had plan has plans for you right now? Did you know that? We are discovering the plans one day at a time, but God has them already in place. Paul says in the New Testament that we are predestined. God has set in advance a destiny. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. In other words, we go through these trials to get me out of the way so I can be reshaped into the, the image of his son, Jesus. How are we doing at that? He's not accomplished his plan yet. God is not finished with me yet. Don't judge me now. He's not finished. Wait till he gets finished, then judge me. Amen? Amen. Let's go to number three. David says, I do not sit with the deceitful. Sitting has to do with where he hangs out, the associations he have, the, kind, the kinds of people that he connects with. That's what sitting means. He said, I don't sit with the deceitful. Birds of a feather flock together. Not because they're told where to associate. We're just comfortable with this group of people or we're more comfortable with that group of people. We like to hang out with people that we feel safe with. So all across America, we have community groups, cluster groups of, of people that just like, they think alike. They're, they're in the same social socioeconomic uh, status. We feel comfortable with people like us. Birds of a feather flock together, so choose carefully who you hang out with. Choose carefully what your associations will be, what flock you're going to land in. Choose carefully, because not only will you influence them, they will influence you. A deceitful person will deceive you in church or out. Because a deceitful person has not found how to be honest. They don't like themselves, so they want to present themselves as something they're really not. Come to think about it, we might have a few deceitful people in our church. I mean, how much time did you spend in front of the mirror this morning to try to make everybody think you were just a little bit younger, a little bit prettier? just a little bit more masculine than you know you really are. We're not content with 
what God gave us, we want to polish it up a little bit. Amen? Amen. <laughs> One guy. <laughs> Where am I at? Someone who has corrupt standards will live by corrupt standards. So we need to find out what is my value system and how do I live out that value system? And the longer we live out the value system, the more solidified we are in that value system because it's been tested. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he says, The heart is deceitful. The heart. Everybody's got a heart. The heart, the inner person, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? He doesn't speak very complimentary of you and I. My, our hearts are deceitful. Above all things. This is why we must be born again. Our heart has to be renewed. God's spirit has to reinvigorate my heart because our hearts are deceitful. And we need to have a new heart. One more scripture about deceit in Proverbs 20, verse 17. Food gained by fraud tastes sweet, but one ends up with a mouthful of gravel. I love it. How picturesque. Tastes. Okay. You know what that is? Okay. We're, we're trying to find out why this does this with this mic. Tastes sweet, but ends up like gravel. I don't like sand in my mouth. I don't know about you. I don't like it. Let's go on. Here's number four, the fourth thing. He says, why God ought to vindicate him? Because I love the house where you live. Remember, the Psalms are not giving us theology. He is not teaching us uh, study on, on God and our relationship with God or, or the church. He is, he is singing out to God his praises and his needs and his insecurities, and he's saying it in a, in a uh, poetic manner. And he says, I love the house where you live. He's talking about the temple where the people would come together and offer their sacrifices and present their gifts before God, and they would worship him and, and uh, communicate together, and then they would be able to go back out again. Something was, he said, I love going to the house of God because when I come to the temple, there's a bunch of people hungry for God just like me, and there's some camaraderie in that. And I understand in the New Testament, theologically, the, the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Spirit is our bodies. But if we want to, if, if loving the place where you dwell is loving our bodies, we're all in trouble. It's more to it than that. We could, we could do that down at the gym. It's when people come together to reach out and connect with God. I love that place. I have to tell you, I love coming to New Hope because I have relationship with all of you. I know your stories. You make me feel safe. You make me feel comfortable. I love coming together and worshiping God with you. So it's not the building. If you come by on Tuesday morning about 10 o'clock and turn the lights on in here, it won't feel anything like it's feeling this morning. 
because it's empty. God dwells in the people. And when people come together, that's what he's talking about that he loves. It, can, it uh, contrasts with what he said in verse 5 where he said, I abhor the assembly of evildoers. I don't want to hang out with them because they're evildoers. They will do evil. I don't want to be around that. I want to be in the house where you live. I want to sense the presence of God. So it corresponds to the, to the church for us, the assembly coming together. So why should we love it? Why should it be important? I wrote down three things in my notes. Number one, because God's glory lives here. What is God's glory? How do we see the glory of God? We have to understand that you and I are all descendants of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned against God. And the glory of God was kind of put out of the Garden of Eden. Today, you and I who are descendants of Adam and Eve, who have lost His glory, have reconnected with God through His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit lives inside of us. His Holy Spirit renews us, invigorates us. It moves us to be like Him, to walk down the path that He has set for us. And our testimony, our story of what God has done in changing, converting, remaking us is a testimony of the grace of God. That's, that's how He gets glory. My, my second reason for loving the church is because God's presence shows up here. You see, God's presence is through the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, people doing God's will because they've submitted to Him. That's the presence of God. And I, don't, I only find that hit and miss at Walmart and Kroger. When I come to God's house, it's all around me. That's why I love it. And my third reason is because God's praise lifts me up. I get lifted up. I'm not a musician. I think I can still find metal C on the piano. And I can, I can still do the G chord on the guitar. That is the extent of my musical abilities. I am not musical. But when I come together here and other places, but I'm talking about here on a Sunday morning, and these people get up here and they use their gifts and they blend their gifts together. It lifts my spirit up. And one thing I have to do, I have, I have to not look at everybody else. I have to focus on me. If I sit in the back, my eyes will be all over everybody else. That's not why I'm here. I've got I've to focus on what those words are because I want to sing the same thing you're singing. I want to sing it all at the same time. I want to be in harmony with everybody else. I want to sing the same tune. I want to sing the same song about grace. Something inside of me lifts me up. I make myself do it. And I can't just stand there like a statue at a funeral. I got, I got to get my feet doing a little bit of a dance. I got to do something with my hands because I'm worshiping God. I love being in the house of God. Here's number five, the fifth thing. He says, I will walk in my integrity. That's, that's the way the New King James words, verse 11. I will walk in my integrity. What's integrity? Integrity has to do with the way you're structured. As in the phrase, uh, the integrity of the fabric. 
If the fabric's worn out, it's lost its integrity. Everything has integrity. Wooden products have integrity. Any kind of craftsmanship has integrity. It means to be done solid, to be done right, to be all connected. That's what it means. We bought, several years ago, a lot of years ago, my wife and I bought some plastic lawn chairs. You know, the PVC kind of, kind of plastic. Uh, and those are designed to be outside. We don't put those in the living room unless there's too many people coming. We set those up outside. And you know, the UV rays from the sun has damaged the integrity of that plastic. Somebody sat in one just uh, several weeks ago, and down they went right on the floor. That thing ended up going in the trash because it, the dam there was damaged integrity, and so it was easy to crack it, easy to break it. How's your integrity? I don't mean honesty. I mean how, how solid are you in your walk with God? How solid are you in who you are and what you want to accomplish in your life? That's integrity. Notice how he says this. I will walk in my integrity. This is a future thing. He's making a commitment in his prayer to God. Have we ever done that? Is that a part of your prayers when you have your conversation with God to make some commitments to him? If you're going to make commitments to him, you know, he hears you. He's going to hold you to that. So be careful with the commitments you make. But he says, I will walk in my integrity. Nobody's going to catch me deceiving. I'm going to be honest. I used to be a deceiver. I used to be a hypocrite. I used to be a user. But now I've turned that around. I'm going to walk in my integrity. And let's go to number six, the last one, because I'm running out of time. He says, my feet stand on level ground. Have you ever stood on unlevel ground? It kind of throws your back off a little bit because your body wants to realign everything with the gravity. <coughs> level ground kind of aligns everything. Level ground. I used to, uh, in my neighborhood as a kid, we used to find a vacant lot and play baseball on that vacant lot. And you know there was a vacant lot I played at in my town that was on the side of a, a hill, kind of a slope. And you know, it's, one team or the other has the advantage when the, when the field is sloped like that. You're just a little bit off balance all the time. But God places us on level ground. How does he do that? He understood our sin, our weakness, that we were all out of balance. He understood that. So he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to identify with us. He who was God's son and man's or woman's daughter at the same time, completely human, completely God, came to this earth, identified with our sin, went to the cross and paid for my sin so that I can be on level ground with what God wants. Even ground, level. The word translated level here is usually translated plain. P-L-A-I-N, like a plain. 
But there are two places, I found this interesting, there are two places where it is translated equity. Equity means fair, honest, balanced. God deals with us with equity once my sin is out of the way. As long as I'm still flirting with sin, that messes up the balance. But he leveled the playing field. Everything is level at the cross. Everybody approaches the cross on the same basis. It doesn't make any difference if you were raised in a conservative home or a liberal home, it doesn't make any difference if you were raised in the city or if you were raised in the country. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're old or young. It doesn't make any difference if you, were, if you led a sinful life up to now or if you led a godly church-going life up till now. It doesn't make any difference. Everybody comes to the cross on the same level, on the same basis, based on what Jesus did for us. Not measuring what we've done. In Psalm 143, verse 10, he says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. That's interesting. He says, good spirit. That's not, that's, that's not the same Hebrew word that's translated Holy Spirit. It's a different Hebrew word, and it simply means good. This is an adjective to describe the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He's good. He's good. He's not looking for an opportunity to catch us in our sin. He's not looking for an opportunity to knock us flat and hurt us. He's looking for an opportunity to grab a hold of our lives, turn us inside out, and make us what He wants us to be, conformed into the image of of his son Jesus. And he's not going to be content until you and I act just like Jesus acted. Whoa, we got a ways to go. Amen? Amen. So I, I, want to, I want to come back here in closing because I got to wrap it up. I got one minute. This, uh, this illustration of Jesus going to the cross for us, everybody gets to the cross the same way. Nobody gets a shortcut because their mom and dad was raised in church. Everybody comes the same way. You have to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. Send your spirit into my life so I can live like you. Simple as that. It's real simple. You're committing your way to the Lord. Then you trust in him and God will act. It's a sure thing. Amen. Amen. So let's bow our heads together. Father, I'm I'm just going to pray right now for people that maybe haven't yet come to the cross. They've heard about it. They know other people that have. But, Father, they're not sure about themselves. And I pray right now the Holy Spirit would bring conviction. The Holy Spirit would open something up on the inside. The Holy Spirit would begin to tug and draw people to yourself. Father, I pray right now that as people are thinking about this and the, the amazing grace that you show toward us, I pray, Father, that you will open our understanding, that you will help us to reach out to you, embrace you, accept you as our personal Savior, ask you to forgive our sin, and Lord, your sweet, sweet spirit will just flow into us, that good spirit that only wants to bring good out through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Remember, God is good.
He doesn't do bad things. He does good things. Sometimes things that seem bad to us are the process of bringing out something good. Just watch for that. That's walking by faith, seeing God do those great things. Amen. We got some prayer partners that will be here to pray with you. If you need a prayer partner, I'm going to be down in the after party having a cup of coffee. So go with God. He loves you more than you'll ever know.